0: Hello everyone, Justin Jackson here. Today I had the amazing opportunity to speak to Douglas A. Bonaparte. He's an author, financial advisor, and president of his own firm in New York City, Bonafide Wealth. He's been featured on many news outlets, including the Wall Street Journal, ABC, CNBC, the New York Times, and much, much more. Before our conversation, I took the time to read his book, The Millennial Money Fix. As a financial planning nerd, I have read a lot of personal finance books over the years. And his book really is the best at breaking down the unique set of issues facing millennials today. So I highly recommend checking out his book. This is a great episode for college kids, quickly approaching full-time work. Douglas began his career in New York City during the economic crash in 2008 and 2009. As we enter the workforce during the COVID-19 era, there are a lot of lessons to be learned from the people who survived and thrived through those times. Douglas is very entertaining, so I highly recommend following him on Twitter at Doug Bonaparte. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. I would love to start out talking about your story. Uh, Let's start in college. Can you tell us the tale of your journey from 19 years old, entering the industry, becoming a financial advisor
1: all the way to owning your own firm in New York City right now? Yes. Thank you for making me feel very old. That <laughs> spans so many years at this particular point in time. Um, but I'm happy to share that with you. Um, so one of the things that, you know, I, I don't take for granted and kind of has is, is always been a competitive advantage for me is that I had the luxury of growing up in the financial planning profession. I, I got to watch my father um, in 1991 join IDS American Express, which Flash forward, you you get to Ameriprise Financial uh, along the way. But I saw him kind of at the beginning when financial planning was becoming something, right? Again, super early 90s, where Mm. still predominantly uh, selling stuff, brokerage, you know, type business, the transaction, not the relationship. Um, But I got to see him break out into this fairly new space pretty much my entire life. And as much as I was getting, you know, paid allowance to file papers in his office as a child, that wasn't really the time in which I ever thought that this would be a career for me. You got to go to um, freshman year of college um, or after my freshman year of college when I think I was having, I know I was having a ton of fun and I think my dad was getting a little nervous with how much fun I was actually having, Um, didn't, you know, ask me what I was doing the summer after my freshman year. And I said, I think I'm just going to stick at school and get some credits done. You know, Who would want to leave was my thinking. He says, I'll tell you what, why don't you go for the second half of summer and in the first half, um, maybe learn a thing or two about financial planning, maybe take a license. Um, And sure enough, uh, when I came home, uh, there was a series seven manual on my bed. uh, And he says, see if you can get this done over the next month and a half, two months. And that was the task. Um, So, not still not really knowing how this would unfold, I was given an opportunity to walk through that door and at least get a credential and a license under my belt. And I did. And before I went back later that summer, I had passed the series, barely, barely passed um, my general securities license, which I no longer have as a fee-only advisor now, um, which is interesting, but that's where it started. It started with an opportunity, um, I think due to my father's own fear that I was just gonna be some raging party animal my whole time in college. Um, he maybe was half right on that one, but uh, it, that, that was kind of the, the start you know, of the whole yeah. thing. And, and then throughout all of college, I would um, work in his practice and really just touch everything from back office, mail logs, creating financial plans, doing transactions, getting to sit in client meetings. Um, I got to touch it all. And I think because of that, um, I was able to tool up real fast. Um, at a young age, um, which we can get into a moment. But that, that's the flashback to 16, 17 years ago, when I first got my foot into the door. And by the, by the way, by the following summer, um, I would finish the 66 and the insurance. I was fully licensed yeah. wow. going into my junior year. And at that point, I could really do, you know, I could do a lot, yeah. you know, for the practice in college. So the, the learning and the hands-on only, you know, it, it kind of went parabolic by the end of college. Do
0: you feel that university prepared you for the job at all? Or was it mostly the learning that you did on, like, on the job?
1: Yeah, I mean, of course, you're going to learn things um, in school that will, will help you um, on this Particular uh, career path, but it it is completely lopsided what I learned in practice versus classroom. Ironically, as from a by the way from a business and finance perspective, and I was not a business or finance major. I was for a hot second in the beginning. I think that was kind of like my dad's uh, concern there too, is I I wasn't really quite um, sticking it out there in the business school. I would pivot to becoming a public relations major mm. in the journalism school, mainly because my my now wife then college girlfriend was a pure journalism major, and you know I just figured it'd be closer to her if I picked that up as a major. <laughs> how how naive and foolish of me! Ironically, um, almost uh, or excuse me, a lot of what I learned in communication school and public relations actually uh, paired very nice with. Um, A career in personal finance. Um, And and the parallel here is public relations trying to establish that long-term relationship, whether that's your uh, stakeholders, customers, um, the people you're working for, however you want to phrase that. And I would argue that we're doing a lot of the same stuff here um, in uh, having financial planning relationships and um, working with people uh, on their personal finances. So um, learning academically, um, and by the way, that dovetails nicely into marketing and advertising, yeah. getting messaging, not just to your clients correctly, but to the public. Um, a lot of, and we'll get to this, I hope, is a lot of my growth strategy has been a really high PR, marketing, you know, mainstream media um, influence and campaign. And I've been successful at doing that. And I, I would thank you know, my education in public relations for that ironically, not, you know, an econ class or an accounting class, you know, I would go, I'd go to business school, you know, later on. um, And I'll get to that. And we can get to that too, as far as, you know, is, is an MBA worth it and and stuff like that. But yeah, no, communications and public relations, something that doesn't normally stick in your head as like, this will help me in a career in personal finance is super, super beneficial. But uh, digressing back to like what actually helped me do, do the job itself um yeah the hands-on learning being able to like write financial plans and do transactions and see how the business is run.
0: Yeah, so what did the what did the first few years out of college look like? Did you immediately start applying these PR skills or you know was that kind of just a nugget in the back of the head those first couple of years?
1: Yeah, I don't I don't think the the PR flower would bloom until like I really found myself needing to grow myself, right? Mm-hmm. So after college, it was uh, a quick trip down the Florida Turnpike from Gainesville to, you know, my hometown of Boca Raton and back and forth kind of working in the family, in the family practice, in my father's practice and just continuing to uh, get experience. I was also studying for my CFP. Um, So my last three credits of my undergraduate degree were my first was the first module for the CFP. I walked into the dean's office and I said, can you sign off uh, on giving me uh, actual credit, you know, accreditation for this class? And he's like, what is this? He's like, that's groovy, man. Here you go. He like signed <laughs> off on it. And he was a really cool guy and uh, he, he got it. He knew this was for my future. And, uh, you know, I graduated. It's kind of cool story that my last three credits were, were the first module of the CFP. Um, so I was at home studying CFP day to day, you know, <laughs> it kind of sucked, you know, part of the story is to know just, just how kind of life, you know, at 24, 25 is, is pretty, and I think 23, 24 is, is pretty confusing, you know, you just graduated college, your the love of your life is up in New York going to law school, you're working, at, you know, for your father and, and <laughs> at the end of the day, you got to go home, you know, your room in your house, it's not quite, you know, what... What you uh, maybe envisioned um, doing, but um, it's a critical part of the story in that ultimately it soured and became toxic. Like that was not mm-hmm. sustainable, um, despite uh, the opportunity of working uh, with your with your father and, and learning as much as I did in a short period of time. Um, you know, back to relationships. What was that doing to a father and a son? And you know, I, I eventually just stopped going downstairs to the dinner table to eat with my family. Like I'd take my, food yeah. up to my up to my room, study CFP, play Gears of War, and, you know, go to bed. Pretty miserable, you know, missing my missing my girlfriend. I I didn't even know where my friends were at that. You know, I'm in my hometown. <laughs> we're right. all we're all we're all just kind of completely lost in life trying to get some respect from someone and no one's really offering at that at that point in time. So um, the quest sorry, the question really was PR Uh, helping me then. No, I was still, and I think this is the point for, for young advice, like the amount of learning that you need, like you're, you're in this um, position where you're amassing as much knowledge and skills as you can. And I want people to be very um, open-minded about the fact that, you know, you're, you're like when I was, whether I was 19, 24, 25, 27, 28, like you're really, really young. And this isn't, uh, an industry or a profession where you're slaying in products is where you're establishing relationships. And this whole mantra, I think, you know, from the old school is go, you know, follow the money, gather assets. And you're talking about people in their 50s, 60s, 70s, you're in your 20s. Right. Like, give me a break. And we'll get to why, you know, that problem, that fundamental issue right there is what ultimately helped me figure out that I'll start bona fide wealth and cater to millennials. But yeah, coming home at 23, like, as much as my father would want me to go out, and and, and I did, you know, I went to uh, the chamber of commerce and did networking events and did leadership positions, like I had always done, you know, along the way. That is something just, um, you know, uh, was always celebrated or, or encouraged is is to do these types of things. Yeah, I was getting my name out there. Like, but that was just that was just because I'm extroverted and I draw my energy from crowds and you know, I wanted to go to these networking events and I thought, you know, if if we're gonna do this, we're gonna do it right. I don't know how much my uh, degrees or education really uh, helped with that as as much as it was my personality. Uh, But looking back at it, like there's no surprise I was able to get, maybe I got a handful of clients in my Mm -hmm. time in my super young twenties down in in Florida. and I just hate it when when young ad- advisors or planners are, are put in a position where they feel like they have to do this or, you know, something's wrong with them for not raising 10 million in two years. Yeah. Like, get get out of here. Like, that's not happening unless you have a deep, deep bench and network. So 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 in those first few years for the, the young advisors
0: and, uh, you know, pretty much my whole class, we're going to be entering that very quickly how do you manage those stressful years like those are pivotal years in your personal life you're figuring out your own brain like your brain doesn't stop growing until like 25 or something like that yeah right so how do you manage that that stress in those opening couple years you know i mean even if it's inside of work outside of work like what were those things that helps you got get through those you know pivotal
1: years Yeah, I think you need to be self aware. Um, Mm -hmm. I wish someone had told me, you know, maybe this is one of the pitfalls of working, you know, in a family practice and believing that, look, things are easier for you, right? If if you're going to play that game long term, you know, your father's expectation or your parents' expectation is you'll take over the practice someday. And, Mm -hmm. you know, there's at least a space of clients that you'll be able to work with and, you know, plug your people into. Um, That is, um, and for anyone in that position, hats off i mean i think it's a beautiful beautiful thing especially when the parent-child relationship's working out but i wish someone had told me imagine that wasn't the case i think that distorted what it was but nonetheless i wish someone would have told me and i guess what i would advise anyone starting out here is um have some self-awareness that and and remind yourself constantly that you're playing the long game like a really long game and that's not for everyone. Like I'm, I'm a very impatient person. I think I got extremely lucky with like just, I think I tried to bail a number of times and like I was just not getting any jobs I applied for at the private <laughs> bank. I think everyone just kept telling me no, um, especially when I got to New York and I thought I had a pivot and like what I was currently doing wasn't gonna be it. Um, I wish someone told me that if I'm truly going to be this advisor or start my own practice or you know build this book or whatever, you know whatever you wanna call it, I wish someone told me, I'm going to be playing a very long game and it's really about creating as much runway for myself as possible. I think the game most of you need to be playing is how am I going to survive over the next five plus years, right? Yeah, I mean, what what
0: would be your advice for somebody who's, you know, even entering a new town, new market,
1: you know, no connections and stuff like that. Like, how do you build that runway for yourself? I think it really depends on who's uh, picking you up to be an advisor. And this runs the gamut. I mean, if you're going to work for, um, you know, your mutual company or insurance company that's kind of posing, you know, as mm-hmm. as a financial planning firm. And look, they might have CFPs, they might, you know, um, have a decent RIA built into them. Traditionally, like, no, you're going to sell insurance products, like, and if you don't, and if you can't sell enough products in X amount of time and meet your sales goal, um, see you later. And I think a lot, you know, the majority of people are going to gravitate there. And that's not a bad thing. It's just an eyes wide open thing. Mm-hmm. Like, um, I'm not fond. I'm not fond of that recruitment model at all. I think it's archaic. I don't think it works long term. That doesn't mean you can't use it to your advantage. And I right. think that's the difference. I mean, nobody in the HR department at those uh, at those businesses wants to hear me say that, but it's the truth. Too bad. Deal with that. Yeah. Um, So if you're going there and it is raise 10 million in two years or get, you know, your aunt and your uncle and your family in the door, you know, and sell someone a BUL, it's like, ew. But, um, you know, if that's the name of the game, understand they're giving you a certain amount of runway and a certain amount of time to exist and get licensed and get educated. Um, And that's just on the job, right? And then outside of that, I think you need to recognize there's almost an unlimited amount of things you can do uh, to enhance Either your attractability when it comes to going for the RIA's and uh, the more boutique places, or whoever gets it right. Yeah. Like there are far fewer firms that are like, we know we have to build you up over five, six, seven years, and we're not going to put much sales pressure, if any sales pressure, on you. We're going to teach you the business. We're going to put you in a team. This is, and then we're going to, you know, give you access to clients. That's not. That's the vast minority. Yeah,
0: there's not a ton of those opportunities. Yeah. So I mean, but, it's great when advisors say like you should get a gig like
1: that, but it's like those gigs aren't there's not that many of those out yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, they're not. And so like you you know, unless you're top of the class or the you yeah. know, the bell of the ball, um, you know, unless you're first round draft pick here, um, you're not necessarily walking up to, you know, the best independent RIA out there that has you know, the bomb training program and is, you know, posting, you know, super high um, percentage of, uh, of recruits that become amazingly successful financial advisors. Most are going, you know, to your Northwestern mutuals of the world to get that first shot there. And, and again, I think it's just important to know that you are in charge of creating your own pathway and destiny here. Um, if you're playing a long game, the inherent difficulty is how do I create, you know, five, six, seven, however many years of runway when I'm only gonna survive maybe one or two years at the, you know, at, at, at the firms that are very sales culture oriented. That's a tricky game to navigate and play. Um, you can get in your head very easily. You can fall out of love with it extremely easily. I mean, all it takes is one bad sales manager to you know, forever have you look at the profession as you know, disgusting and why do yeah. you ever you know, wanna do that? I think it's super unfortunate when those things happen. But you, if you can know from the jump that you are going to literally um, weave together a pathway for yourself, right? Um, mm-hmm. I think you'll be better prepared to handle some of the uh, inherent volatility that's gonna come your way when you know, you're told, hey, you didn't open X and many cash. That's cool, you know, thank you firm XYZ, I'm gonna now go over to firm ABC. You know, yeah. Me- Because all the while, and I think here's the bigger point, point. all the while, you know, what's that, nine to, you know, nine to six, eight, eight to six, whatever it is, all the while, you are working on so many other areas that's going to make you a great advisor you're studying your cfp you're thinking about you know the content you want to create whether that's your blog a uh, video you know you whatever it is yeah you know, whatever creative outlet like mm-hmm. so that touches on like how are you going to market yourself yeah look you know whether or not you're you know whether or not uh you need to be getting clients up front you know we should be trying and should be thinking with the kind of end in mind that yeah you're going to be responsible assuming you want to be an advisor that's right. you know developing a, a business developing advisor I mean, there are plenty of advisors who, who don't develop don't that. That. you can yeah. be, you know a, a practitioner more or less but should always be thinking about how you're going to do that how you're going to brand yourself what makes you unique you should be networking expanding your base um, uh, excuse me, your network base. So going out uh, to places that preferably uh, coincide with what you like to do, love to do and attract the people in that same areas. There is thousands upon thousands of hours that you could dedicate to supplementing just what you're learning inside of it. I mean, half the reason you're going to those firms is because they got a paycheck for you and you got to pay rent, you still got to pay rent. And and by the way, um, if you, there's a, and, and I think this is a very, um, you know no one wants to hear this one but going to a big city or an expensive city you know to struggle you know financially because your draw is you know so so um you know the, what about just substituting that for going back home spending a year or two you know if your parents are willing to let you live rent free yeah. i mean this is su- i mean i think that's the best play overall is not going to a market outside of where rent is the cheapest, mm-hmm. right? Um, stacking as much cash as humanly possible while you're getting paid you know, to train up, going home at, you know, go get a beer with your friends on the weekends, but then spend pretty much all of your other time trying to become the best advisor you can be. Because if your goal is to get to those RIAs and those firms that are the you know, shining stars and you know, your, you know your future looks super bright by getting in there, what are you doing to put yourself at the top of the list when you, when you approach them and say, look, now I've spent the last two years working at firm ABC, but I've built this. I know this, I got my CFP make it. So they have to invest as little of their money in you as possible. So it's such a no brainer to get you in their firm. That's how you do it. Like truly that's how you do it. And I don't want to really hear from too many, you know, 23, 24 year olds, um, with you know historically, who relatively and historically will have the least amount of responsibilities in their life that they can't, if you really want to become an advisor and crush it, like you can't sacrifice uh, 12 to 24 yeah. months of your life. Two
0: years of that. Yeah, that makes sense. And this is, and, and it is a long term investment. And I think like a career in advising, part of the reason why people want it is because it's so fruitful down the road. But it takes a lot of go. vision, I think, for a 23 year old to say, oh, yeah, this is
1: the commitment I want to make. Yeah. Gary Vee says it like all the time, you know, when he's like seeing people, if anyone's yeah. into that, he's like, how old are you? And they're like, I'm 22. And he's like, you're a puppy. You know, like, <laughs> again, like, it's almost getting like, ew, I sound like an old guy when you, when you hear people say that kind of stuff, but the reality, yeah. you know, but that's the truth, right? Um, you know, typically you're not in that kind of frame of mind at that point. You're just coming out of college, you know, the world, you know, now you're out there in the real world, um, but that's the ticket. You know that's the real ticket and you touched on something extremely important which is just how fruitful um this this business can be um you know not to not to brag here i'm 36 you know um i control my schedule i get to be with my two daughters whenever i want um i probably have the best life work balance it's, it's unfair like it's mm-hmm. really unfair and i think a lot of people uh, I think a lot of young advisors or folks who want to come in the industry, see that prize, you know, see that prize of like, I can really have an amazing life, make amazing money. However you want to define that. And truthfully, sky's the limit on the money side, go scale yeah. yourself a multi-billion dollar firm. You know, you're making, you're making more money than you'll ever need um, 10 times over, but between the money, the balance, the flexibility, building an asset and a business contacts, you name it. It's the sweetest thing around. Um, yeah, guess what it takes to get there. Did you really think it's going to just happen? Of course not. It's going to take yeah. an insane, insane amount of hard work. What, just because you graduated from college and got a college degree? Like, you, come on, you got to really apply yourself um, and you got to really want it. Otherwise, it's never going to happen for yourself. You're never going to get to that reward. You know, people look at me as, oh, so young and, you know, like, he worked in his dad's business. Yeah, that was a short period of time. And while it opened the door, like, I left that. And how had to build this thing brick by brick in New York. You know, do, do the opposite of what I did. I went to New York City because I felt that I could afford, I took what he gave me and I learned and went to another advisor and said, look at this value proposition I can put before you. Here's the kind of salary that I, I want to command um, so I can pay my bills and have a beer on the weekends in Manhattan um, and I'll try and, my bet. And I knew I had to start building a book along the side of that and ultimately replace that salary one day. That's a lot of, pre- you know, there was- mm-hmm. There's no, there nothing backstopping me. I, went, I came up to New York City in debt, right, from, from college and from having to get rid of my car. <laughs> um, you, know, you know, almost a cliche, like, I'm going to go to New York City and make my, my dreams come true. I was able to do that because I had three and a half, four years of experience that virtually no one else had. And, you know, it's not like, you know, meanwhile, Ivy League grads were, you know, going to work for big banks to make $110,000 a year. I was making half that, you yeah. know, um, after three and a half years of working in personal finance, still knowing that, you know, there'll be a point where, you know, I can go flex on all my investment banker friends and all my private equity friends, <laughs> you know, somewhere down the road. And and still, you know, now, no, still, still trying to make that happen. But, you know, I'm not in the office 90 hours a week, you know, yeah. so um the flexing still there you know um or at least you you get to earn it after a really really long period of time <laughs>
0: you get a flex by knowing your children so that's <laughs> yeah
1: exactly that's that's a really good way to put it yeah um so when it comes
0: to introverts and extroverts um you know i think this is a tough business for people who are scared of i guess social conflict social discomfort yeah um, do you think this is a business that introverts can succeed in
1: are you reading my blogs? Did you dig that up? No.
0: <laughs> yeah, I've been, I've been doing some research.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's good sound. Like, sounds very familiar. Um, but I love that you're talking about this one. Um, yeah. The takeaway the take on that is there's a financial advisor for everyone. Um, one of the colleagues, a colleague of mine, still a good friend to this day, was uh, a gentleman that, you know, I was, if I was 24, he had to have been like 33 or thirty, I think it was 10 years older than me, somewhere around there. Um, and he isn't the most extroverted person in the world. I would think he's, he's quite introverted. Um, and, and I realized just he's a great advisor. Like his clients love him. Like when he's doing his thing with his clients, it's obviously a very analytical guy. He picks a very analytical client. Wait, let me, let me back up on that. Okay, you're an introverted uh, financial advisor. You don't think introverts need financial planning and services too, like yeah. again. There, there is an advisor for everyone. So you don't draw your energy, your marketing won't be around, you know, hosting big events or filling big rooms. Just because you're an introvert doesn't mean, you know, you give up on, you know, putting yourself out there in a way that Mm -hmm. works for you, or that's comfortable for you. Um, I don't like the whole introvert versus extrovert thing because I know introverts can do it. Now, will they have as easy of a time going down the traditional paths of client acquisition and business development? Probably not. Yeah. But to fully, you know, but to, you know, paint with a broad brush and say like, oh, they definitely don't have a shot here. That's that's just not true. I know a lot of great, amazing advisors, way more successful than me um, who absolutely kill it. And, you know, they're not, you know, they're not putting on a show, they're not the, um, you know, center of attention.
0: So what about extroverted advisors who, who do want to pursue the PR path, do want to be polished, um, polished public speakers, like business school hasn't prepared me to speak on camera or into a microphone, I'll tell you. that. And so it's like, how do you, how do you sharpen those skills, you know, before you make it on the TV, you know, before you get
1: good interview opportunities? So there's two, two pieces of that. There's yeah. one, obviously what's instinctual. Like some people are just great behind a camera or a microphone. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, I love, I absolutely love camera work and mic work. Um, that's why I get to do it. Um, you know, so there's, you know, whether that's talent or just passion for it or, or just a, uh, a desire to do it. Okay. So what if you don't have that? And, and especially if you do have that, it doesn't matter if you do or don't have it, you got to practice. Oh yeah. Nothing, 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 nothing will replace that. Like, yeah, being I
0: outgoing can, doesn't prevent you from uh bombing an interview or deliver you won't give a good
1: keynote just because you're excited about it, you know. I've been on national TV, CNBC, Fox, you name it. I've been on it. And you know, it's it's funny when you're first doing it, you're getting so nervous when you're doing recorded content. Like you can have unlimited takes. Like it doesn't matter if you mess up. Like you literally, like so just real quick down, so like, you, you can gauge how like, uh, how good you've gotten at this based on how you feel during recorded stuff, like even what we're doing here today, like if I, yeah. if I say something really stupid right now, um, whatever, you I'll say, hey, <laughs> cut, you know, Justin, please cut that out. Um, yeah, that's not something you can do when, you know, 2 million people are watching CNBC. Right. Um, and you're being asked a direct question and you're live on air. Um, so my point is this, it just takes practice um if you don't get butterflies in your stomach for the big stuff something's wrong you're probably dead um like you need that and I always joked with myself that you know you've reached a point of being pretty good at it when you're about to go on air or do something live and that feeling shows up that butterfly in your stomach sick I'm going to throw up on myself feeling Mm
0: -hmm.
1: when you say oh hey friend there you are like yeah expecting it, knowing it's there, saying hi to it, acknowledging it, and then just blowing right through it and you know, laying down your track. Um, that, that is kind of an aha moment for anyone doing this kind of stuff. I, even with my big personality, would not have been able to get there if it wasn't for countless numbers of podcasts, digital content, live content, creating my own stuff. Go get your camera, put it on a tripod and go start making videos of yourself it will feel awful like it will feel so disgusting um <laughs> if you don't do it like oh i skipped this i mean geez even to this day like if i set up a tripod and it's just me and i'm trying to make like a, a piece of video content like you'll never know i did 50 takes yeah. <laughs> you'll never know <laughs> but you got to do it. you kind of got to just push through a lot of these things um it's practice in any uh situation yeah of course if uh you know, you, you know, if you know how to smile in a camera and, and really like put on that show. So like you did theater as a kid or uh, yeah, yeah these, those things are really going to help you a lot. Yeah, I, I
0: did uh, three productions of uh, the Nutcracker Ballet when I was a little kid. That's a little secret that I have, there. but it's empowered <laughs> me so much. <laughs> cats,
1: out the, cat's out of the bag now. Um, <laughs> yeah, my role as, as Peter Rabbit in kindergarten. Um, you know, that's, that's, that's where it started. I think. Oh, I was also. I was also Tom Turkey. I got both leads. Oh, nice. um, in the holiday shows um, for for kindergarten. I guess that's where where I, you know, developed the knack for it.
0: Yeah, congratulations for that. Um, thank, thank Let's you. get back to uh, your story a little bit here. We never really got to uh, how you started your own firm. That whole transition, moving to New York. What was that like? Did that feel like starting completely all over again, or the you know, same
1: nerves starting out? Was it? What was that? No. Like? I think I felt extremely confident, you know, amassing three, four years, all my licenses, you know, wrapping up my CFP. Like, I, I kind of knew I, I had a lot going in the fact that I could secure a job, um, you know, relatively quickly after the fallout that was my dad and I figuring, figuring out we, we weren't going to be working together anymore. Um, I was super excited to get to New York City. I mean, for me, as someone who like saw it, you know, went to, went to New York as a kid and was like, oh my God, like this place is awesome. Yeah. This was a little bit of a dream come true. Um, I was able to really just plug into uh, that advisor's uh, practice and, and get going from day one, like building systems, making them better, writing plans, doing transactions, you know, and just, you know, taking in, you know, New York City. But interestingly enough, um, a big part of the story here is that I got off the plane at JFK when I think Lehman Brothers collapsed. So um, yeah, super, super, super big part of this entire narrative is my first year and a half in New York City is, is 2008 and 2009. It's amazing
0: it just- how many successful people nowadays have, have kind of that original you know intro stories like everything collapsed and that was the first day and like it kind of bred i don't know maybe toughness or something like that i'm hoping yeah. covid
1: 19 does that for me <laughs> Just- it will <laughs> it, it literally will um there will be uh, a lot of people you know it, it's a big shakeout you know yeah. it's a big shakeout for those who you know and in a good way like if you've ne- if it wasn't for you thank god you got you know thank god the tree was shaken now and yeah. you, you went on to something hopefully you really enjoy doing And and before I get into that part of the story, I think it's very important to know that it's okay to realize, like, almost the sooner you realize this is not for you, the better off you're going to be. If you're playing a long game, like, what a bad beat if if you're in year four or five of dedicating yourself to this and then you figure it out, you know, that this isn't for you versus like, okay, I spent a year really busting my butt. You know, in the profession, and this isn't for me. I'm gonna go do something else. I'm 24, I'm 25, versus 28, 29, 30, and you know, you're you're setting yourself up for for big things there. In any event, yeah, the the origin story of New York City is is one of you know, it's like uh, I wrote I wrote about that as well. It's called The Bane of Wall Street. It was my 10 year anniversary of uh, of the recession um, story, which was you know when when Bane and Batman's like you know. Yeah. In the darkness like you're were, you're were, uh I, I was born in the darkness right? I was bo- <laughs> you know you've you've only adapted to it like I was born in the recession like I was yeah. born in New York City finance sky is falling you know environment so drinking out of the fire hose in by the way just show up I'm in some 30 something year olds practice I think it was like maybe you know I want to say you know, 30, 40, 50 million in assets, you know, super high growth. Um, And, you know, the sky's falling and the phone's ringing off the hook and they got to talk to a 24 year old they've never met in their life before telling them to, you know, keep calm and stay the course and, you know, get a joke in there to chop up how miserable people were. I mean, this is insane, right? And you can pull up any number of uh, 2008, 2009 stories. Um, I'm thinking to myself, well, I just arrived. I guess I'm going home in a month or two. I mean, as confident as I was just a second ago saying like I showed up confident in my abilities, like they were put to the test immediately. Like the PR skills that I acquired put to the test immediately. This is where all of it was paying dividends because I was able to survive, not just survive, but help keep the practice I was working in afloat like that, that. Proving test you know with everything that would define me um as an advisor and prepare me for you know what could be the worst you know we march got close to it you know this march got really really close to it but boy boy was i ready you know to handle it Hmm. now with two but this side with two like then it was just me and a and a you know apartment in a city and that was it like there you know other than some student loan debt There was nothing else there. Today, completely different story. A mortgage, a lot more student loan debt, a wife, a kid's and i'm thinking to myself for the last 10 years what if oh eight happens again how am i going to be prepared for that what are you going to do differently how are you going to handle your own clients how are you going to communicate to them what systems are you going to put in place if people need to start buying dips and taking stabs at opportunities what if they just start calling you all at once like they did in oh eight but now you got i you know didn't envision a pandemic being the thing that did it and my kids would be stuck home with me that was a whole other you know layer of oh my god like i really need to be reliant on my systems and my time here because there's things I can't do and can do in this particular moment. And if it's going to be 08 or worse or its own version of that, I need to be able to handle it because truth be told, as you just said in the beginning here, um, there are as as bad as things can get, there's always the the flip side to that is the opportunities opportunities that come out of it. And that's the big takeaway here is when I saw 08 happen, I was in no position to seize any opportunities. I was just trying to make sure I didn't have to go back home to South Florida that meant keep this practice alive I didn't have and, and the good the good news was I had hardly any skin in the game beyond that like mm-hmm. you know like I got all this experience on my uh on my belt you know these free notches of experience uh at the end of it um I'd probably just have a have a heart attack today <laughs> um but yeah that's a big difference so anyways that that was like the first year first year two years in New York and we got out of that in, in pretty good shape, in really good shape by 2010, the practice I was in had its best, had its best year, uh, which is amazing. Um, but the relationship I had with that particular advisor had had soured, there's almost like a trend here. It was probably me, <laughs> uh, but no, you know, it's just, um, there was a lot, a lot that went down over those two years, just from a manage- managerial point of view between an associate and someone. And we won't get into that, but let's just say, um, by the end of that, everyone was kind of depleted and it, it, the hand was forced, like it was time to move on. And that's where, and I'll take a break here. That's where I found uh, my previous partner um, at Ameriprise who um, had a lot of ambition and from the jump was like, let's try and find a practice to buy and double up. I think he felt that um, acquiring would help him grow a lot faster than organically growing. Um, and then, you know, at that point, you know, so I, I, by the way, got to New York, did my, finished my CFP like in 2010, you know, that was all wrapped up um, at, at the end of 2009. Um, so I was one of the youngest CFPs in the country at that point at like 25, um, which was super cool. And then from an educational standpoint, I think I still had, enough, it was onto GMAX. Like I, I figured if I was going to come all over the map here, forgive me, I'm just trying to, you know, it, it, it's such a long story. Um, it was on the GMAT, so I think the education component still went. I figured yeah. I would need a very strong network. One thing I realized in moving to New York City is just how like little my degree from Florida was going to carry me um, in a very, and, and no knock to Florida. It's an amazing place. I think today it's like an out you know, more than outstanding of a school than when I was there, but Um, You're competing with Harvard and Yale and, you know, Ivy League schools in in Manhattan. And I just needed a a more local um, higher end network than than what I had. And I looked at NYU Stern, which had a stellar, you know, part-time NBA program. And ironically, my father um, went there. was always like, as a kid, like always heard about that. Um, And I was always impressed by that. Um, so I, I started studying for my GMAX to see if I couldn't acquire myself a network. I didn't want to leave, and and by the way, hedge this bet I was making on myself that I would be my own advisor in my own practice someday, or at least a partner and have equity in a firm someday. Um, well, if that didn't work out, I'm sure some pedigree would be very helpful in getting into some of these really nice private banks and family offices that are around, you know, that are obviously more plentiful. Uh, in New York city than anywhere else in the country. Um, And I could just be like, Hey, you know, I have all this skill. I have a nice MBA, you know, let's, let's go trust company X, Y, Z. So who, which advisors do you think should consider
0: MBAs? I think obviously it's, it's not necessary to be a practicing advisor, but yeah, I mean, do you think it's super necessary or at least convenient for somebody who wants to manage their own practice and you know, learn the systems stuff and build some, build a higher network, whatever that means.
1: Yeah. So usually you go get your MBA for three reasons: to you know move yourself um, vertically in your own organization, uh, to make a lateral move out of your organization to another field or another organization, and then thirdly to acquire a network. Um, I'd argue that the network is the most important one of all. Mm. Um, and professors will tell you that, or I hope they tell you that. Um. And for me, like I wasn't there to, there was nowhere vertically to go. I mean, you're, you're responsible for that, right? You grow, you're growing your business. Um, There's nowhere to go in the organization, especially for me, who was working for one other individual. Um, You know, I wasn't planning on leaving, but yeah, there was a good part. Yeah. Again, that hedge of, so that was there, but that wasn't the primary. Uh, And then thirdly, it was the network, you know, that for me was exactly why I was going there. Um, To be able to hopefully rely on the friends that I was making and the inroads I was making to um, their networks that you know if I was going to develop business at some point in time. Now you got to figure out how to help them first, right? We'll get to that. But nonetheless, uh, that's why I went there, and I think it was very, um, very, you know, it was was easier for me to see the return on the investment I was about to make. By the way, we're talking like $120,000 in student loans. I didn't have $120,000 on me. Mom and dad weren't helping me out literally had to go borrow yet again, um, on top of my then almost wife's, uh, were we married at that point? No, we got married in business school, oh, you know, then wife's quarter of a million dollars in student loans from her law school education. I mean, this is starting to get into crazy amounts of debt. You know, she is the cautionary tale. I'm the, I'm the one of like, all right, how many, you know, how much business do we need to develop over this three-year program to break even on this? Right. Can we do that? Is yeah. that feasible over three years, four years, five years? How are we going to get there? Yeah, I did the math and it just seemed very, you know, if I was really, you know, with all the experience I had at that point, um, it seemed very doable, right? If not, I'd be stupid not to. Um, and that, that's a bold proclamation to make. But I think for most people, it's very, so it's very geographic centered. You know, if you're going to blow 80 grand on an MBA and you can't figure out how it's going to ultimately get clients in the door, um, you know, for me, it was, all right, 120 grand, that's six, dollars a month, you know, in a student loan payment, let's back that into how many financial plans, how much in assets under management, like, is that going to happen? You know, is that going to work? And what's the value of that network? I think you have to analyze it like that. And I would, I would tell you that I think for most advisors, um, you don't need an MBA. Right. Um, it really depends on what kind of advisor you want to be. And you can learn how to look, you can even learn how to run a practice without an MBA, but it does help when you're advising other clients' businesses, yeah. right? So if you're going to do small business planning, like that's a nice thing to have there uh, to help them out. And you can draw upon the education knowledge that you've experienced. And by the way, you've been growing your own business too. So you can draw an actual practical experience. So what,
0: what was the culture like um, as far as making connections within your MBA program? Like were people pretty open wanting to connect? Like were the people there there because they wanted to expand their network, or you know, is that something you had to really take on yourself to make a point of making
1: those connections? So I did nighttime program, so three hours, three days a week, and then in the in the winter breaks and summer breaks, you were there like five. Those were the intensives. You're there every day for like nine hours. Oh. Um, yeah, that's a marathon. But I think everyone, what I liked about this program is everyone, um, you know, unlike the full time program where very traditional pathway into like banking or private equity or consulting. Um, And you know, you got your summer associateship after your first year, like none of that was what we were doing. Like we were leaving our full-time jobs, you know, at five, six o'clock or to get to class by six o'clock. Everyone in that room was hustling. Everyone already respected each other, like for Mm -hmm. how hard, for the work that they, you know, we were burning midnight, we always joked, we kept the lights on, you know? and I think everyone had that kind of mutual respect for one another. We took our, you know, our opportunities to go drink after class seriously, like, especially in that first year, everyone really wanted to make an active effort to make friends and network and kind of share in this experience that we were having that I thought was a little bit more unique than what I saw out of the, the full-time kids. Um, you know, we all lived in the city. I mean, there are there some really fun and crazy nights, too. So, I mean, you got great memories, great friends, but I took it a step further. I tested the water by figuring out, all right, what can I offer? So I had this moment about halfway through business school. One of the things that was going on in the back of my mind and I went there to try and solve was how was I actually going to grow a financial advisory practice? Like I couldn't shake this feeling of what I had struggled with basically for, I guess I can do the years here. So I'm seven, eight years in now, like we're getting close to a decade of being a financial advisor Um I still had to solve this problem. You know, you can't, no one can do the quotes there. The, this problem of how I was really going to grow long term when everyone's telling me go get baby boomer, you know, clients, you know, pre-retirees and retirees, and that just never made sense to me. As someone who you know knew enough about marketing and PR, like I didn't get it. Like really, I'm still twenty something. You know, you want me to go, you know, show me the bar in Manhattan that has only 60 and 70 year olds at once, you know, a 20 something year old to talk to them about, you know, how to plan their entire financial life. Right. right, Yeah. Yes. It just wasn't adding up. So the light bulb went off at some point in time, as I was looking around the room during a break and there it was, it was everyone around me. And again, knowing that it was a long, and that's where the whole like long-term, that's where like, it really started to you know, develop in my head. Um, that we're going to play a long game and I think I you know I thought I was spot I think I had something good like and and the only way to test this out is to do it I'm going to invest in everyone in that classroom let's do free seminars let's really go all in and brand around this what, what that's when the word that's when the word millennial showed up on the map for the first time and that was us and I'm like all right young <laughs> professionals hardworking millennials you know we got you know, everyone here is kind of trying to do the same thing. Um, yeah, that was it. Boom. You know, and I was like, this is what we're going to do. We're going to market around this. There's, I couldn't think of any advisors at the time going out there, you know, into the media. And I was like, all right, let's get this message. Let's get this messaging out there. Like mm-hmm. that was unique. You got laughed at in 2013. If you said you were going to work only with millennials, if they even knew what the term was. Yeah. There's n- there's no money in that. They have no assets. You're out of your mind. I'm like, "But we have financial planning and, you know, you can collect a fee for planning." <laughs> We're not going to wait around on that. I'm like, but they're all going to be, you know, execs and doctors and lawyers and, you know, white-collar professionals. Like that seems such short-sighted to me that you would not want someone young like me who has access to them. Right. Not to go develop that, right? Like, fortunately for me, I was, you know, helping manage Uh, another advisor's practice and was able to get older clients mainly from growing up in south florida and being particularly good at it um i didn't i just didn't love it but that's where the wow
0: that probably gave you a really unique ability to talk to older people
1: yeah i'm everyone i'm I'm literally everyone's grandson um (laughs) give me give me a deli at the five o'clock hour and and i am i'm literally literally reliving you know world war ii battles with people uh with your grandparents um, that's, that's more or less a true story. Um, anyways, that's where the epiphany went off, you know, halfway through business school that that's what we're going to do. And the branding of, you know, Douglas Bonaparte, New York city's financial advisor for millennials, like that's a mouthful, but that is literally the branding I did. I didn't even know that was winning me keywords and keyword searching. Like I had picked something unbeknownst to me that was doing well over on the, the Google search engine side. I just knew I had to create a website for that. I had to get a blog up. You know, I got to pitch media outlets, get quotes, get press. I can do that. You know, social media helps in connecting to journalists. And I just ran with that. And I tried to go from, you know, six headlines to now it's over, well over 500 various clips, videos, podcasts, TV appearances. It, I tried to make it as nonstop as humanly possible when it came to um, positioning myself as a voice for uh, millennials and personal finance.
0: Okay. So how did you transition into that full, full send millennial, basically, like, how how did you do that? How did you analyze it? Is it just all just, you know, interacting with peers? Just, is that how you came up with your kind of criteria? Um, I've read your millennial money fix book. It's very good. It's taught me, taught me a little bit about money. Um, Yeah. So how did you create that? how did you create that criteria? And how did you analyze, you know, a, a generation that's kind of up and coming?
1: yeah so this is a really good question you know again it was staring me right in the face you know it yeah. was right in front of me and if you read the book which you said which you did uh, thank you for that um it really was born out of the recession you, you got to look for the story um that you're trying to tell i mean those no, so- stories are what sell right right um and watching my wife come out of 2008 and nine the other half of this whole equation is watching her take on a quarter million dollars in student loan debt to be uh, denied what she thought would be available to her because of the Great Recession, you know, um, to become a bag holder of student loan debt as opposed to go get that big lawyer job um, that even if you hated law you could pay back that debt pretty quickly. You know, she was now in a in a pretty precarious financial position along with all of her super smart friends who decided to make that same. Uh, to make that same bet on themselves. And she, she was not you know, supported financially for doing that. She just couldn't you know, walk away from her debt and, and mom and dad weren't paying for that either. So um, seeing that happen and seeing that happen across the board to us, basically older millennials was really defining for me. It was jarring. It was how you know, I, we wanted to address how this happened which is how we start the book out. How did we get here? You know, where, where was this, where did this promise go astray? Uh, Why, why weren't we financially educated to think a little bit more independently Mm -hmm. about these, you know, multi, you know, hundred, multi six figure decisions you're making at 20, like seriously, like, oh yeah, here's, here's a $300,000 decision you need to make. You're 20, (laughs) you know, wait, you're 2022 and you were never given a single lesson in personal finance. Yeah, that's kind of crazy. That's, that's that's probably not going to go well. So since I since brought up the book, and
0: I've, I've done my research on you, I've read a lot of your stuff. Um, you. There's a couple of things that I've heard, I think maybe a couple months ago, you were on a podcast, and uh, you're talking about kind of some new things to be aware of with COVID. And one of the things you brought up was the rainy day fund of three to six months being maybe insufficient. Does that uses ring a bell? Yeah, yeah. No, so it touches, it kind touches on of you. Touches on to good on, Good point. Um, things people should be concerned about now stuff that's changing right now with uh the older millennials or sorry the younger millennials and I think I'm the first Gen Zer actually I think I'm the first iteration of Gen Zer coming through so congratulations yeah thank you so what are, what are some things we should be looking out for what are some new things that you know there's maybe old hat that we need yeah to
1: throw out? yeah I think I know exactly what you're what you're touching on here I, I've been pretty pretty long on this idea that you know there's this the old like I say, the old hat thinking is like get as much money put away, you know, into the retirement plans and long-term investment vehicles. You can hear like your mom or grandma in the back of your mind, like, are you putting any (laughs) money in your retirement plan? Or, you know, like, I hope you're saving your money. And it's just like, So specifically in the context of like, you know, retirement accounts and things where your money is literally locked up and, you know, without penalty or taxation. Um. Watching, you know, my peers, you know, go, go into the a depleted job market, uh, saddle with student loan debt, you know, the one thing that stood out was, oh, my God, like cash would go a really long way here. Like having liquidity um, would offer un, un, a crazy amount of security at a time in your life that's already, already inundated with insecurity, mm-hmm. uh, now the recession. And that stigma has stuck with me uh, throughout my entire career of, I don't think three to six months uh, of your living expenses is sufficient. You know, be bold enough to say six to 12, really nine to 12, like a full year. So my own personal goal, even in, in my my household was let's get a year of cash because of what my wife and I had experienced, you know, in, in our formable year, in our, you know, beginning years of starting our adult lives and it's this notion that you know almost like we're this fear the fear of missing out of compounding right yeah you know the fear of missing out that you're destroying your ability to retire because you you know didn't at least get the amount i mean yeah try and get the free money if you can but even if you even if you're sacrificing compounding and free money you know in your in your 401k match or you're missing out on market returns like Anyone who just got started, you know, investing in March till now is like I'm the greatest investor alive. You know, it's like, <laughs> yeah. and if you did, and, and if you didn't invest, your friends who did, who have their Robinhood accounts, are been reminding you of it every single day. You know, you've missed out on Bitcoin and all yeah. of that. I'm big fan of it. Um, you know, you're you're led to feel whether it's through your peers or through your parents, um, that you're missing out on something. And the reality is that you're not. Um, I would I would make sure that I am secure and feel good so that I can then go take those risks, right? I, right. The goal isn't to invest, it's to stay invested. What good is putting your money in the market if you're just going to have to take it out to deal right. with something that pops up? And I don't think there's any shame in giving yourself a sense of security first before uh, dealing with other long-term goals that you might have especially when you're starting out. You will feel invincible in your 20s if you racked up, you know, 6 to 12 months of your living expenses and cash. Then go. You know, then go take, you know, those bigger risks that everyone tells you you should take. I'm all for it. I'm all for yeah. taking those risks and opportunity, but not ahead of really feeling secure and sleeping well at night. I think you're you, you'll be that much better at taking those risks and sticking with the decisions that you made Specifically, because you've given yourself that kind of security with liquidity. Yeah.
0: So an- another point uh, in your book that I really liked, and I think will continue to prove to be more true over time, is kind of the financial goal of retirement being like this, like North Star financial goal where everybody wants to retire and chill until they move on, right? And this kind of shifted to financial independence. Um, wondering if you could touch down a little bit on on that concept, and you know.
1: What does that mean to you? Yeah, I think I made the joke the other day. Like, I'm never going to retire like my grandparents in Boca and just eat and play golf and play with the grandkids. And like after seven, eight months, however many months of COVID and being at home with kids, I'm just like, all I want to do is move to Boca and eat and do nothing on a golf course and play with my kids and grandkids. But um, as much as I was joking about that, I really don't think our generation, even your generation, um, is finding all of these ways to, you know, uh, to be productive and find our purpose and work really hard. I don't think we're doing all of this just to do nothing um, right. at the end of it. You know, I, I whether it's because we, we ultimately can't afford to and, and we'll have to work as well because we might see changes to entitlements like social security, mm-hmm. um, or it's just that much more difficult to save, which um, it is. Um, from a relative perspective, uh, harder to save, you know, due to, uh, uh, cost of living, especially on the big expenses like transportation and housing, um, not on the LCD TVs apparently, um, but obviously education, um, you see where inflation really has hit and also, uh, wage growth. So yeah, it's a harder environment out there for, for us and you, um, respectively, but, um, we're not doing this just uh, you know, to sit, 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 sit by a golf course. I would think that we more than likely would like to find something that continues our purpose and continues to make us feel fulfilled um, alongside of not having to work as much, right? Mm-hmm. Or just be able to continue to work as you love to do it in a perfect world. Like that, that to me seems more of financial independence, having choice. Yeah, right. having, having the ability to decide what it is you're going to be spending your time on, regardless of its financial function in your life, that's financial independence. So, um, yeah, we're a pretty creative and dynamic uh, generation, uh, both Gen Z and Millennials, and you know, pretty much born with technology in our hands. So, that allows us to do that. I think it's silly to think we'll be chasing the same fade grandma and grandpa had you know, grandpa fought in World War II, like front lines, you know, he's a war hero, he yeah. crushed it, he does, that guy deserves to sit in a deli eating his face off, and yeah, have his grandkids at the pool, and take us to a science museum, and that's the retirement, like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's done, pl- he's done enough, Um, he doesn't, he doesn't need to find any more purpose.
0: So, I'll kind of wrap it up here, and ask, ask the final question, unless you have anything else you want to add after this, um what is what what actions should the leading Gen Zers be taking on like what would the Gen Z Douglas be doing at this point you know if you knew everything you now knew now you know what would you be doing if you could kind of you started over you're 22 and you've learned all the lessons that you've learned
1: I would have a TikTok account <laughs> and I would be your foremost financial you know TikTok superstar I'm kind of half kidding I mean, yeah people are listening like ew old guy I'm kind of not like I think I I personally yeah. feel like I missed the boat on that like I'm too old to go down that road I'm very jealous of it like if I went on it no one's gonna watch this like I, I live on Twitter. <laughs> Twitter yeah like a good older millennial should um but in all seriousness Um, I don't think there's something new or novel that I could offer uh, anyone of any generation, regardless of how young they are. It's it's a lot of the classic advice you'd receive, you know, about just thinking with the end in mind. Like you pick up a classic like Think and Grow Rich, you Mm -hmm. know, and and a lot of these Napoleon Hill quotes, um, and you're going to find just like the original self-help book, you know, um, whether you want to get that through your Gary V's of the world or your Simon Sinek's or, you know, going back old school to Napoleon Hill. You know, uh, you got to think with the end in mind, understand what the goal is. My advice, so here I'll boil right down to it. Think about what you truly love to do and what gets you excited. Um, This isn't new, but if you haven't, if if no one gave you the confidence or encouragement uh, to put on your blinders and tune out mom and dad and your friends and, you know, anyone putting pressure on you to do something that's truly not authentic to you right? Then, yeah. you know, it, it, you got to be pretty brave to do that, right? Especially when, you know, mom and dad have been footing the bill for like 18 to 22 years. Got news for you. It's not their life. It, it's, yeah. it's your life. It's your happiness. Um, I got in some ways very lucky by being, you know, pulled by my father into something that I ultimately enjoy, right? I, I'm, right. I am built for this. Um, and because of all of these things, you know, it, it really meshed well with me and I was able to take the ball and run with it. And apply my own version of what I thought financial planning is, and get very creative with it, and do things that I love to do in it, right? right. Um, it's you know, again, it's that it's that if, this is a long game, and the sooner you can figure out for yourself what you really love to do, um, the sooner you'll find your own way to to happiness and your your career in life. So, obviously, everyone tuning in here is to explore this, you know, career and personal finance, or has an interest in it but I just want you to critically think about what, what you want for yourself and people spend their entire lives asking that question and never come up with an answer. So get going. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Douglas. I really appreciate you coming on. Yeah, my absolute pleasure. Justin, all the best to you. And uh, you know, uh, people can find me uh, out there on the internet and Twitter at Doug Bonaparte uh, for a good laugh. I'm sure you know. Yep. All right. Thank you. Hello, everyone. This is Vincent Pacillo, producer of the MSU WMA podcast, where we are inspiring and educating the next generation of financial planners. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you enjoyed it, please check out our channel on all platforms such as Spotify and Apple Podcasts, and check out our social media at MSUWMA and MSUWMA.com.